All right, so let's get to the sermon where we're going to talk about sin, hell, and divorce. Oh, my. <laughs> this, this is uh, a preacher's favorite trinity of subjects, right? Just to get them all smacked right there together. Well, let's, let's, let's just take a step back and ask why, why we are going to have a sermon on sin, hell, and divorce. Honestly, if it were up to me, you would never hear a sermon on sin, hell, and divorce because they make me uncomfortable, they make it awkward, they would make you uncomfortable. And so uh, if it were my own flesh making the decision, I, I would not want to, to preach this text. But at Renew, we want to not preach what I think, we don't want to preach what I like, we want to preach what God has given us. We want to preach his word. And so we have made a foundational commitment that we are truth grounded. And truth grounded means that we are grounded in the scriptures. And one of the ways that we fulfill that commitment is that we practice expository preaching, which is a practice of preaching the Bible verse by verse so that it is not up to me what verses we pick or what topics we pick. It is uh, it is the book of Mark that picks what we're going to talk about. And we've been going through Mark uh, paragraph by paragraph since we opened in, uh, on Easter Sunday. And we're staying faithful to let Mark tell us what he wants us to talk about. And in God's wisdom, he has provided these verses for us. So that is at least the first reason why this uh, subject is in front of us today. So we are back in the Gospel of Mark. We did take a little break for Advent and uh, if you remember where we were in the summer and the fall, we were in Jesus' ministry in Galilee, and then that came to a climax when he goes to a place called Caesarea Philippi and finally asks his disciples, have they put together what they have seen him teach and do about who he is? And Peter, of course, confesses that he is the Christ. And so from that confession on, Jesus has been uh, steadfast in his uh, ministry of going to Jerusalem where he is going to be rejected, uh, put upon a cross, and die. And so we have started that journey to Jerusalem, and that's where we pick it up as we get here this morning. And if, if, if we want to give kind of an overall title to the, the next few chapters of the Gospel of Mark, uh, we're calling this period King's Ransom. Go back one slide. King's Ransom. Because what we are really uh, going to be observing as we go through the scriptures is the story of the king, Jesus, giving his life as a ransom for many. And so the, the overall arc of what is happening in every passage connects to this mission of the king making himself a ransom for many. And so that understanding helps us know why we have to talk about the subject in front of us today. Because we must start with our need for a king's ransom to be saved. None of the gospel makes any sense if we do not grasp why the king had to die. And the reason the king had to die is what our text is about today. He had to die because of sin. And if, um, if we're honest, 
Uh, we only really understand the gospel to the extent that we understand the seriousness of sin. And so I actually decided to make the title of this sermon as gross as possible. Today's sermon is called Soul Cancer. Soul Cancer. Now, the word cancer, for me, is a nightmare word. It is a horrifying word. Uh, Personally, I have seen the ravages of cancer. I am an only child because I had a sister uh, die of leukemia. I've watched grandparents die of cancer. And, uh, and I have always just grown up and kind of always have this baseline underneath the surface fear of the word cancer. Someday I'm going to go to the doctor's office and they're going to say, Cancer. And so that's my, that's my nightmare word. And I suspect that a lot of us have that as their nightmare word. We're all dreading that that word will be said. And I know some people in this, in this room have had that word said to them and have, have been able to uh, see their cancer go into remission or even uh, have victory over cancer. But it is a scary word that we fear. And the reason that we fear it so much is that it, it fights in disguise, right? It fights inside of us, and it fights to the death. That is what makes cancer such a scary word. We know that it is nothing to be messed with. And so if I can impress upon you really one thing is to make you see sin the same way you see cancer. Sin is the cancer of the soul. It comes in disguise. It comes within, and it wants your life. If we do not fight cancer with medical intervention, it will grow, and it will take your life. The same is true of sin. If we do not fight sin with the intervention that Christ gives us in the gospel, it will grow and it will take your life. So what I really want us to see as we go through this passage and we deal with these weighty subjects is to dwell upon this main point. The gospel is the only intervention that will stop sin's destruction. The gospel is the only intervention that will stop sin's destruction. And so my purpose in this sermon is to do what I think the text wants us to do, to become uncomfortable, to become frightened, so that we cling to the only intervention, so that we follow the word's advice just like we are uh, scared with the word cancer, to follow the doctor's advice and take the medical intervention. So as we go through this passage, we are going to look at three stages of sin's cancerous advance and at the same time three gospel interventions that stop it. So let's begin with the beginning stage. The beginning stage is that sin starts by complacency. 
Sin starts by complacency. But the gospel intervention is that sin is stopped by mortification. So we're going to look at verses uh, 43 to 48, this teaching of Jesus where he talks about your hand, your foot, and your eye uh, causing you to sin. I want us to grasp what I mean by sin starts by complacency. So cancer begins because our body does not recognize it. Cancer begins in disguise, and the body does not realize the great threat of the cancer. And so, in fact, the body ignores the beginning of cancer. It does not fight it. The body, because of the nature of cancer, responds to it with complacency, with no reaction. In the same way, that is how sin starts. Sin starts because we don't react to it. Let's look again at verse 43. And verse 43 is really stereotypical of of all of these verses uh, down to verse 48. Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. Now, I would suggest to you when Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin, he is not expecting anyone who is listening to him to say, nope, not me. The the suggestion of if your hand causes you to sin is that your hand causes you to sin, or maybe more accurately, you sin. And so he is talking about the fact that you are a sinner, you need to focus on where that's coming from. You cannot take it lightly. You cannot take it with complacency. But if we're honest, every single one of us has sins that we commit and we don't react very seriously to them. We don't respond with much uh, vigor in stopping some sins. Um, We sin, the sins that we do sin, because we aren't really afraid of what they can do. That's why I'm not here preaching to you about murder. I don't look at many of you saying, you're really going to murder somebody. You're you're about to commit adultery. I hope hope not. Uh, You're about to rob a bank. I probably will never preach a sermon on the sin of bank robbing even though we all know that is a sin. What I want us to look at is the sins that we don't react to, the sins that we don't fight, the sins that we treat as non-threatening. It's the sin that we think is small. It's the sin that we think isn't a big deal. It's the sin that we think no one's going to notice. Those are the sins that, that we commit. And so it's very interesting that in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus uses these same concerns to talk about the sin of lust. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 28 to 29. He says, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. 
For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. You, you see the sin Jesus picked? He picked the glancing eye. He picked that, 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 that little nobody-knows-it moment where you looked at the cleavage. He picked that sin that we all do in one way or another a hundred times a day. At least I do. Sorry <laughs> to confess that, but you know. Uh, we, the, 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 the point is that Jesus said that the sin of a wandering eye, a lustful eye, is a big enough sin to drag you into eternal damnation. We lust, and we don't fight lust, because we know it is small and harmless. And so, we're complacent towards it. This, though, Jesus says, is adultery of the heart. And it is enough to sentence us in the judgment. Now, I, I don't know that, that that verse gets everybody, but it's important for us to grasp what Jesus is talking about is not the sins that you're vigilant against. It's the sins that you think you can get away with. It's the sins that you think aren't that big of a deal. So in, in my own uh, past, I have a sin of teasing. I have a sin of, of kind of belittling. And so when, when I got married to my beautiful wife, I developed unconsciously the habit of, of teasing and belittling my wife with things like the dinner. You know, this meal's not hot enough, or this meal's not very tasty, or did you, did you think about salt, uh, or something like that. Small, just small little comments, right? They, they, don't, they don't measure up to much. Will they do? 20 years of marriage, and my, my wife has a lot of hurt. The person I love has become very hurt by the accumulation of all of those comments. Has lost a lot of confidence in a lot of parts of her life because of those comments. And worse, as a dad, I taught my kids to do this. My kids have picked it up. They also have a teasing, belittling nature. Such a small thing. And yet, it is so damaging. It is so damaging. Jerry Bridges wrote a book called Respectable Sins. And it's worth just reading the table of contents for identifying perhaps some of those sins that we have taken a complacency towards. Bridges' uh, table of contents lists as respectable sins, sins that we don't really react to. He, he mentions ungodliness, anxiety, discontentment, unthankfulness, pride, selfishness, 
lack of self-control, impatience, irritability, anger, judgmentalism, envy, and jealousy, sins of the tongue, and worldliness. That's not a complete list. But as you listen to that list, what is a sin that you play with? What is a sin that you don't react to? And now I want you to really stop and say, what is its fruit? The fruit of my little sin is a hurt wife with deep wounds. So, sin starts by complacency, but the gospel intervention is that it is stopped by mortification. Now, mortification is a word that we don't use very often, but it just means to put to death. And that is what Jesus is is, uh, stressing to us when he says the words, cut it off. Cut it off. Do the thing that needs to be done. Cut off the hand that causes you to sin. Now, obviously, this is Jesus using figurative language. Otherwise, we would be able to identify Christians as the squirming stumps because we would be handless and footless and eyeless. Right? It is figurative language to stress to us the danger of sin and the response that is required. It is is verbal use that is meant to be urgent. It It is calling sin gangrene, right? Gangrene is something that that infects and kills and moves progressively inward. And the only way that you can really deal with gangrene at some point is to cut it off, right? So so the gospel intervention that Jesus is giving us in the words, uh, put it to death, cut it off, is is a twofold ministry of the gospel. First, it is the the way that the gospel opens our eyes to sin, and then the second is how the gospel changes our affections about sin. I I want us to dwell on both of these. The, The eyes are opened to sin in the gospel. Only when you have the gospel are you allowed to look straight at sin and see how bad it is. Because outside of the gospel, you have to say it can't be that bad. Only the gospel allows you to see the full horror of sin and to recognize the full horror of sin. And Jesus in these verses is showing you the full horror of sin. And he does that because he talks about hell. Jesus brings up hell again and again and again. And so if we are going to accept Jesus as our truth, we have to accept that hell is real. We also have to accept that what he tells us about hell, it's awful. He calls it the unquenchable fire. He calls it the place where the worm does not die. Put together, that means that it is unending Awful hell. (laughs) It's the word.
And we also need to recognize that Jesus is precise about what hell is. Hell is the judgment for sin. Nobody has to go to hell. Only sinners have to go to hell. The problem is, we have all chosen sin. And it is because we have chosen sin that hell exists. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages of sin is death. He is saying that when we sin, we are purchasing condemnation. We are purchasing judgment. We are purchasing, we are choosing hell. God's not choosing hell for you. But our sin is purchasing heaps and heaps of it. Why so serious? Why why is there this, this hell? Why is it such a serious deal? Well, I, I think perhaps instead of looking at hell from our perspective uh, as sinners, we need to look at hell from the perspective of someone who is sinless, as the creator. Right? So put your, put your mind in the, 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 the frame of the creator. He created a world. He gave everything in this world to be beautiful and to flourish. He looked at all of his creation, including us, and he said, this is good. This is very good. And then we took his rules and we said, I have better rules for myself. And we, we sinned. And in sinning, we could no longer reflect the glory of God and we could no longer be good in the presence of the creation. And so look at the world that we're in. Look at how scarred the creation is. Look at how war-torn the nations are. Look at how much sin is in this world and how could anyone look down on our world and pronounce, it is good, it is very good. So sin has taken God's treasured masterpiece that was good, very good, and has made it a cesspool of sin and violence and rebellion. It is because God loves his world, that he loves his creation, that he deals with sin. He sees sin like we see gangrene on your child. Imagine the doctor said to your child, said to you, your child has gangrene up to the knee. Out of your love for your boy, you would say, chop off the leg. We are the gangrene in God's very good creation. And it is his love, not his hate, that says, chop out the gangrene and put it where it can never hurt my good creation again. And the name of that place, because there's just no better word for it, is hell. 
But it is because of his love that God destroys sin. And we have been given eyes to see the seriousness of sin because of the gospel. But next, I want you to see we have also been given new affections. One of my favorite Puritan preachers says, uh, he describes the expulsive power of a new affection. And he basically says the reason that we sin, the reason that we disobey is because we don't have anything bigger in our hearts to love. Right? Well, the gospel gives us something much bigger to love. It gives us God. It gives us Jesus. And if you have God and you love God and you have Jesus, you love Jesus, then you will have a hatred for sin. Because nothing is more obnoxious and opposed to God than sin. And you can't love both. So you are given new affections. And so these new affections build in your spirit a warlike uh, vigor against sin. And so when it says cut off your hand, you would rather cut off your hand than grieve your Lord and Savior with sin. Where do we get this power to mortify? Where do we get this power to go to war? It's not going to come from our flesh. Our flesh is already full of gangrene, all full of soul cancer. It, it comes from God. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You see, the Spirit is there to give you the fight. So let me ask you, what sin do you need to kill? And what do you have to do to kill it? The next stage, the advanced stage, sin spreads by compromise. But the gospel intervention is that sin is shrunk by sanctification. And here we look at verses 49 and 50. So, one of the bizarre things about cancer, or one of the insidious things about cancer, is that it grows in the body it's killing because the body shares its life with it. The body that is host of the cancer accommodates these tumors, and even sources it with blood and oxygen and the ingredients of life for it to grow. The body, rather than killing it, actually makes space for the cancer to develop. And the same thing is true of sin. When we do not kill it, we begin to accommodate it. We begin to accommodate it. We begin to give it space. We begin to give it permission. We even protect it. 
And that is called compromise. We compromise ourselves so that that sin can be kept safe. Here's some words for compromise. We rationalize. We explain to ourselves and others why it's not that serious. We make excuses for it. I only yell when you do something stupid. Right? It's your fault. (laughs) I would be sinless if I didn't have to deal with you. (laughs) Right? We negotiate. We negotiate. I'll keep my drinking problem by just limiting how much I drink. But I won't deal with the problem. I'll make small adjustments. We'll rename it. Yeah, that's my vice. I have a vice. It's a bad habit. Or my favorite, one that I use, that's just my personality. That's just my beautiful personality in the face of a jerk. Right? No. But these are compromising words. These are words that are saying, I am going to make room, space, and nourish a sin problem rather than repent or deal with it. Right? And so this is what Jesus says to that. Verse 50, he says, Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Now, this, this description of, of salt is, is, is based on this. Salt is, is useful. It's an important ingredient. It's an important compound. It has the, the value of flavoring and the value of preserving, and, and we could go into those different values. But, but the basic point is salt is only good when it is salt. If it loses what makes it salt, if it loses its saltiness, it isn't any good. And so what, it is, what Jesus is talking about is the character of salt is what makes it useful. It is useful because of its character or its nature. And so what Jesus is saying is when he says losing your saltiness, he is talking about you losing your character. Losing the, 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 the strength of you as a Moral person. He is talking about compromise. Now, we we are smart scientific people. Salt doesn't lose saltiness if we're talking about the scientific compound of sodium chloride. But we need to recognize in the world of Jesus' day, salt did not get made in a factory. It got mined from places like the Dead Sea, which was a very salty place, and they would just take heaps of this white, salty substance, and they would sell that as salt. But it wasn't pure. The salt was also mixed with gypsum and other white uh, powdery substances. And so if if that container of salt would get wet, the real salt would dissolve and leave behind it white powdery substance that wasn't salty. But the the, the nomenclature was it was was salt. So what, what, what Jesus is talking about he is talking about salt that, that still appears to be salt, but without any of the qualities of salt. Still looks like salt, but it doesn't have the character of salt. 
He is talking about becoming a Christian in name only. Right? You say you're a Christian, but the sin in your life is not consistent with that word because you are compromised. So what is the gospel intervention? The gospel intervention is sanctification. Jesus says, instead of losing your saltiness, he says, have salt in yourselves. Have salt in yourselves. So what is having salt in yourselves when it comes to a Christian? It it, it obviously means having, having the character of a Christian. Another way of saying that is a Christian bears Christ-likeness. As you pursue Christ, you are more Christ-like. You act like Christ. You think like Christ. You choose the way Christ would choose. You, You avoid sin the way Christ avoids sin. To be salty is to be a Christian, not in name only, but to be a Christian inside and out. When people are looking and when they are not. Privately, when it's just you and your computer, and publicly. Sanctification. Here's my definition for that. Sanctification is living undividedly for Jesus. That's that's what it means to have Christ-likeness. That's what the character of saltiness is. And so I want to ask you an important question. Is there a part of your life that you don't share with Jesus? Is there a part of your life that you don't share with Jesus? Do you have a black box for your self-pity? <laughs> Do you have a black box for your lust? Do you have a black box for how you treat your money? How you think about your spouse? that you don't let Jesus into. See, sanctification is living undividedly for Jesus. There is no segment in your life that Jesus is not Lord. And if that is true, you will be sanctifying your life every day. You will become more like him every day. Where where are you going to find the power to let Jesus into every part of your life? You are going to find that power only in the gospel that breaks your heart open to love Jesus like no one else. And I love Paul's words in Philippians 3. They are words for all of us to aspire to. Paul says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible, 
I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Beloved, if you are slack in your sanctification, if you are slack in your fight for sin, the, 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 the call is spend time with Jesus. Grow your love for Jesus. He is the expulsive power of a new affection. Now the final stage. Sin destroys by callousing, but gospel intervention is destroyed by grace. And here we turn to chapter 10, the 12 verses in chapter 10, where you're all wondering, my goodness, how long is this sermon going to be? <laughs> no. And these 12 verses have as their subject, at least on the surface, uh, divorce. So I want to uh, say a few words about divorce, but I actually believe that that is not the primary purpose of, of this text, and I'll, I'll explain that in just a second. But, but the Bible does speak on divorce. And I mean, maybe going back to the last question, is there any part of your life you don't share with Jesus? What about divorce? God's design was for marriage to be permanent. It's for it to be till death. My wife on our honeymoon uh, kept saying that we're married forever. And I kept saying it's till death. <laughs> <laughs> But it's till death, right? <laughs> it's till death. Uh, God's design was for a, a man and a woman to be married for life. And so divorce, the separating of this uh, union, is not his will. God's will is never for divorce. However, we live in a fallen world and divorce does happen. And I know that I am speaking to people who have divorced and so we do not proclaim that divorce is unforgivable. We do not proclaim that divorce is unredeemable. We remind ourselves of what Jesus said in Mark 3:28, all sins are forgiven, or all sins are forgivable to the, of the sons of man. And so this is certainly forgivable. And the gospel can redeem. The gospel can redeem through, through second marriages. It can redeem through reconciliations. It can redeem in many different ways. I, I am not here, and I don't have the space to get into all the specific questions about Christians and divorce. If there is an issue that you are struggling with, I, it would be better to deal with it as a, as a pastoral visit. But again, I want to suggest that this text is not primarily about divorce, but about the heart. And the reason that I see that is, is from verse 5. So this debate comes to Jesus from the Pharisees, and it's a test about uh, divorce, because even back then, talking about divorce was no fun. But verse 5, And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. That is the underneath-it-all statement. Because of your hardness of heart, God wrote this commandment about divorce. And so that's, that's what's underneath this law. That is what's inside of this debate. That is the, the bottom line issue. And hardness of heart is all about the callousing of the heart. That it has become where it was soft and tender, it has become hard. And so just like cancer, 
In its final stage, it attacks the vital organs. Sin, when it is in its final stage, attacks the heart. And it makes the heart unwilling to repent, unwilling to forgive, unwilling to love. In fact, it turns the heart into stone. Divorce in this passage is a symptom of hard-heartedness, which is an issue that shows up in all sin behavior. But but look at, at how hard the heart becomes when it is given over to sin. Hard-heartedness in this passage tells us that it becomes so severe that you hate what you vowed to love. That's, how, that's, that's what hard-heartedness does. Because God wanted me to have a sermon illustration this week, I, Becky and I had a tough fight this week. And it is amazing how hard your heart wants to get when you're fighting with your wife. All those, I love you, you're wonderful. Now, yeah, you just turn into a gladiator. You're very hard-hearted. You say very mean things. That's, that's sin, owning the heart. And this passage says that this, this hard-heartedness infects us all because he says to the Pharisees, you plural, the, this law was given to you plural, meaning all people, because of your hard-heartedness. This hard-heartedness makes you hate what you love It sets you against God. God gave marriage as a gift, and you hate him for putting you with her. And you want to break his good gift of marriage. This is what hard-heartedness does. And then you are willing to destroy what is good. It, It takes, as I've been told many times, it takes two to marry, but one to divorce. And the real tragedy of this hard-heartedness is you are so angry you don't even care what the consequences are. But look at verse 12. When we divorce, we turn our ex into an adulteress. And they have no choice. But our sin multiplies. And why? Because our heart is that hard. The vital organ of our soul has turned into a rock. Now maybe that's not the worst thing about this. The worst thing about this is that the hard-heartedness that Jesus speaks of that is behind this commandment cannot be removed. The law cannot do anything for a hard heart. Jesus says it was because of the hardness of heart that we gave this law to you, which is just a way of saying it was only there to restrain the hard heart. There is no word here of curing the hard heart. And and, and here's here's the, the, the real prickly thing about it. Who's having this conversation? It's the Pharisees. 
The Pharisees were the most scrupulous, the most law-abiding. They believed that they followed the law perfectly. They believed that they were stepping in, in uh, they were walking righteously all day long. And yet, they are afflicted with hard-heartedness because they are there in front of Jesus not to learn about the way of life, not to learn about grace, not to learn about uh, the Son of God, but to try and test him to either at minimum solve some dispute between them, but more likely to figure out a way to get Jesus in trouble. So the heart of the Pharisees, the most law-abiding, had become as hard as granite. The law has no answer for hard-heartedness. And so, if we are honest with ourselves, our sin condition has reached final stage. Because can you deny that you don't have hard-heartedness? That hard-heartedness has not directed your steps. But the gospel intervention. Jesus says, because of the hardness of your heart, God gave you this law. So the law was given because of sin, but the law was incapable of fixing the sin. But here is the good news. The good news is that in response to our hard-heartedness, God did not just send us his law. He also sent us his son. He sent us his son. Because the only way for us to be rescued from the destruction, from the final stage of the hard-heartedness of sin is by his grace. And so we have talked uh, as an illustration a few times this passage in John chapter 8 about this adulterous woman who is put in front of Jesus' feet by all of these rulers of the law who, who come to him and say, this woman was caught in adultery. What are you going to do? The law says stone her. And Jesus takes this moment with this woman on her, at his feet and he says, after writing on the ground, He who has no sin, throw the first stone. And nobody picks up a stone, but instead the crowd moves away and disappears until it is just him and her. And at that point, Jesus looks around and he says, has no one condemned you? And the woman says, no. And then Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now here is the great surprise of the text. The one who has no sin, the one who can throw the stone, the one who is behind all of the righteousness of the law, looks at the woman and says, I do not condemn you. The Jesus gives her life, not because the sin was not serious, but because he did not come for her to receive the condemnation of her sin. 
He came to receive the condemnation of her sin. You see, Jesus took our condemnation. He died for the hardness of heart. He died to destroy the cancer of our souls. He died to heal us. By his wounds, we are healed. You see, what Jesus' gospel does when it penetrates your heart is it breaks it. You know that you have been receiving the gospel when your heart breaks at the love of Jesus. The hard heart becomes the broken heart because of the grace of Jesus. Sin dies when grace breaks our heart. And when that happens, all of the resources that we need, forgiveness and repentance, overflow. And they destroy the hard heart. And so if you have the gospel, and if your heart has been broken by the sacrifice of Jesus... Where do you need to take the words, I'm sorry, to? Where do you need to say the words, I forgive you? Where do you need to say whatever it takes? I want to work through this. Because I love you. You see, sin is the cancer of the soul. And if we do not intervene with the gospel, it will destroy us. It destroys us through complacency and compromise and callousing. Sin is deathly serious. The gospel is the only answer. And so I, I leave with this question. Have you received the free gift of the gospel? Have you said, I know I am a condemned sinner, but I ask Jesus, take my condemnation from me and give me, in the place of this heart of stone, a heart of flesh. Beloved, he delights to make you new. Receive him. Amen.